Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Lexicon with Interesting Engineering, the podcast where we dig into the details of the latest engineering advancements. I'm your host, Mike Brown, and joining me today is Dr. Jonathan Ludinger, a postdoctoral researcher in the Creative Machines Lab at Columbia University. Jonathan started out as a PhD researcher in Hod Lipson's lab, the creator of the world's first open source 3D printer that could be used for food. The team has experimented with doughs, meats, vegetables, sweets, made a seven-ingredient slice of cheesecake, and printed chicken samples, which were then cooked by lasers. Jonathan, welcome to the show. How you doing, Mike? Good to be. So tell us about 3D printed food. As I understand it, we've uh, probably already eaten it. Listening to your intro there, I made me realize how many crazy things we've worked on already. But yeah, so 3D printed food is something you've, you and probably everybody else has probably come into in contact with on a daily basis. When we talk about printing, quote unquote, what we're talking about is a machine that can carefully deposit ingredients in a really controlled manner. So any paste, any you know, whether you're putting frosting on a on a cake or you know mustard or ketchup on a burger or a hot dog, that is a form of printing. Yeah, all my research has been working on developing the software and the hardware around making this technology a commercial thing. Yeah, as I understand it, the uh, ketchup dispenser at a uh, hot dog stand is kind of a uh, primitive form of uh, 3D food printer. Is that right? Yes, I'd say it's a more antiquated way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out a lot of people have experience with it already. It's something that is going to be quite familiar to people then once they get one of these in their home. Yeah, that's the hope is to make this more of a commonplace thing, almost like a kitchen appliance. What we're really doing is trying to see all the different types of ingredients we can actually print with doughs, sweets, vegetables, you name it. Make it as relatable as it can be to a human chef, um, but we call it a digital chef. So we can do a lot more as well and a lot, a, lot of, a lot of things you couldn't do with your own hands, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, and uh, one of the ingredients that I understand the lab has worked with previously is uh, meats like chicken. Mm-hmm. But just to clarify, you're not directly using the uh, fibers of the uh, chicken as it came directly from the meat. You, you put it through a food processor first, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, we're, we're in, by no means are we creating our own Frankenstein concoctions in our lab. and we're, We are not a chemistry or a food lab by any means. We are an engineering lab. So basically what we're doing anytime we want to print with a new ingredient, whether it be chicken or something else, is we'll go to the grocery store, much the same way you would if you're doing shopping for your home. And then we will grab these ingredients if they are not already into a paste form, which is the ideal texture and rheology for printing. Then we will process them on a food processor or we have some other cool kitchen appliance gadgets which we can use to further process like the actual material composition but we'll do simple pulverizing to it, get it into a ground form or into some form of paste or liquid, and then we will load it onto our machine for printing. So that's our general process. Right. And you've been working on this technology about five, six years, is that right? Yes. Yeah. I've I've been involved with this project for that long and just kind of helped to push along the food printing side. And then the core of my PhD was also around laser cooking, which basically means I'd be characterizing different lasers for cooking purposes, eventually in the hopes of incorporating that technology with the food printing side to create kind of one machine to do it all. Right. So you're moving from the ketchup dispenser to a more automated system that uses software. 
to that plus a cooking laser that adds <laughs> heat into the mix. Is that right? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting way to think about the progression. But yeah, I'd say it's it's close to that. <laughs> right, right. And on the ingredient side, I imagine there's also been a progression there too over the years. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we were always trying to push the balance of our machine, come up with new things to print with, things we've never touched before. I think we've touched at this point probably something from every major food group. You know, we looked at meats like ground chicken, ground beef. Sweets are the easiest thing because they're high in fat and they're already pretty processed. So they're easy to flow in a, through a nozzle. Vegetables, I'd say, are probably one of the more difficult things because they have such a high water content. You'd think that's a good thing because it makes it very thin and easy to push through a nozzle. But getting them down to a very uniform, consistent thing can be difficult at times. So there's techniques we have to do to kind of make that into a good paste form. But yeah, at this point, what we're doing is we're trying to combine as many ingredients as we can into one printed food product, because the more ingredients we use, the more complexity and the more error prone our process is. So we're trying to make our software really robust to make it work for anything. Right. Kind of like moving from a black and white printer to a color printer with a lot of different uh, options available. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Mm. And some of the uh, major benefits of this technology then, I mean, you mentioned about vegetables. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what this could mean for the general consumer? I think where it gets interesting is when you have a machine that can control the input and output of ingredients, it has all total control over basically the the nutrient. It, It starts to understand what nutrient profiles it's printing and it's making for you, and it can keep a tally of this. So the nutritional facts you'll see on a box of cereal, for example, it has all this information for all the ingredients loaded in its on, on the machine. So as it's depositing it, it knows the exact quantity, it knows the exact you know protein, carbohydrates, calcium, potassium, vitamin D, so forth. And it can start to create and optimize different foods for you based on your nutritional and your, your flavor palette, basically. And I think where it gets interesting is when you have all this data and the more you use the machine, it's like a, having a personal chef that starts to learn your eating habits and it can start you know, recommending things for you. Maybe you're someone who likes savory foods or sweet foods only at certain times of the night or certain times of the day. It can start to predict your eating habits and, and do all these things. Obviously, right now, it's not at that point, but it's not inconceivable to think about it getting to that point once you start feeding all the data into it. And that's where I think it gets really interesting. That is really interesting. So we talk about personalizing to taste, but could we also personalized to diet and perfect, for example, if I'm not getting enough of a certain nutrient or ingredient in my diet, the machine can predict that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Like I mentioned, right now, what we're doing is just developing the bare bones of it, the software and the hardware pieces, but that's like the learning element of the machine. I think that could definitely be something that could that could be used pretty easily for people and really start to create new flavor profiles and new tastes as well because you're combining ingredients on a millimeter scale, which is something it's pretty hard for a human chef and human hands to do. So if you can interlace ingredients on a much closer level and, and cook them more selectively, you can develop different flavors and, and local expressions on the food, which weren't previously possible if you're cooking it in, say, like an oven or on a stovetop where you're cooking the entire thing by some uniform amount. So I think that part is really interesting, too. Wow. So kind of having the, uh, the experimental chef in your home and possibly even downloading future recipes. Yeah. 
is really fascinating. As you've been developing this machine, I mean, it must have been uh, quite a fun experience, like uh, picking out different things at the supermarket and uh, trying them out through the machine. Have there been any surprises along the way? <laughs> yeah, it's something where my day-to-day is just thinking about food all the time and trying to come up with, like even when I go out for restaurants myself, I cook a lot as well. So I try to get a lot of inspiration from that or from watching shows. It's always interesting trying to think about things we're used to eating, like basic things like a pizza or a burger or something basic like that and how we can try to recreate that on our machine. Because if you think about it, a lot of the foods we're used to eating are things that have been optimized for our kitchen appliances and for our hands. But when you introduce a machine that has controlled by software, controlled and has much more customization and high fidelity on a millimeter scale, you have to start rethinking how foods are combined. And it just gives you a lot more control. So we try to recreate things like like a cheesecake you mentioned, for example. We, we tried to recreate the design of a cheesecake, but we could nest different ingredients inside of each other within the structure. On, on, and this thing can really, be, can really fit in our palm of our hand. So it's a much smaller cheesecake. But when you eat it, you feel the way with these ingredients hit your palate in different ways based on how they're interlaced inside of the actual food. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've seen Willy Wonka or the analogy where the child eats the chewing gum and they, they taste their first course and their second course and their third course. It's like very similar to that, I thought, where um, you kind of can feel these different food expressions hit your palate at different times and then you can really control the, the flavor on a local level, which is cool. How did the texture compare to a normal cheesecake then? I guess we started calling it a cheesecake, but really the base structure of it was actually out of graham cracker. So I know a base cheesecake is very, very soft and fluffy throughout it and has like a crust usually. It was a little bit different because we used a lot of different ingredients. I guess we took liberties with the word cheesecake, but it was more just like a, a slice of dessert cake. But, you know, we used things like Nutella, banana, different like cream cheese, and then graham cracker and frosting among other ingredients. Yeah, I mean, the, the texture was very close to a dessert type thing where it kind of softens and it kind of melts in your mouth. So yeah, it was very analogous. That's really interesting. And do you picture this then kind of replacing a lot of other kitchen appliances or do you see it as kind of a complement and a new addition to the kitchen? I think the latter. I kind of see it as a complement, but it's really hard to know how people will use this technology. That's something we've been trying to figure out. But, you know, you see this with a lot of new technologies that come out. It's no matter how many ways you try to position it or predict where it's going to go, you have no idea until it actually hits the market and people start figuring out use cases for it. So I think we're in that phase right now where we're trying to talk to as many people as we can, understand the best use case for it. My hope and dream would to have this almost be like a microwave that people have in their kitchen in 10, 15 years, however long it'll take for it to slowly be adopted once it's a commercial and we work through all these kinks. But I think there's going to be, it's going to be a long road because there's just needs to be this ecosystem to be developed around this technology, which doesn't currently exist. It's like you've developed an iPod without the iTunes library, without all the MP3 files for you to download. So like, you know, what use cases are for it right now? So what we're doing is we're trying to develop this whole ecosystem to make it more easily adopted by people commercially. Yeah, so it's kind of the experimentation phase at the moment. A lot of this is reminding me of efforts to replace meat with vegetable, plant-based products instead, Mm -hmm. lab-grown meat as the future. How does this fit into those projects? I mean, does it help at all with any of these efforts? For sure. I'm actually glad you brought that up because I think that's one of the killer applications of this technology right now that I see. 
is the ability to replicate the structure of real meats, but using plants and other ingredients. So actually, yeah, one of the companies that's been basically funding my postdoc at the moment has been this company, Redefined Meat, which is an Israeli company that's basically doing this exact thing. So they're using plant-based surrogates to recreate the structure of real meats. So they're using the printing process and there may be perhaps other couple other companies that are trying to do this, but it's pretty crazy. I've, I've tried their product and actually experimented with in lab um, this, this past week when they brought me some samples. But if you can picture it, you're using plant-based, say you use plant-based pro, like the, the fat portion, the muscle portion, and some kind of fake blood as well. You combine these ingredients on a machine and then you can, you can control the marbling and the way these fibers run through the food, or through, I'm sorry, through the steak in this case, which would be the food, and in a much more controlled manner. So you can recreate different cuts of steak, which have their own unique texture profiles and expressions of flavor throughout the actual sample, or even come up with your own your own custom cut of meat if you want to that has some unique marbling pattern that's special to you. This process allows you to do that, which is pretty crazy. And the results are pretty crazy to actually try because it tastes so much like the real thing. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because I think that's something that people have grappled with, especially in the lab-grown meat industry, where uh, trying to recreate the mouthfeel of a steak. So the sample you tried was that that was uh, plant-based, or was that lab-grown, cultured? Um, it was plant-based. So each of the ingredients were developed from scratch in a lab. Again, from the same, I think, some from some base ingredients that we're used to eating. I think beans might have been the the base protein, the starting point for some of the main things. And then it was printed. Yeah, so that's the way this meat product was formed from this company. But I know other companies are also doing, like you mentioned, lab-grown, or maybe they're, they're culturing the cell and then letting that kind of thrive and develop the meat there as well. So I know companies are taking a lot of different approaches to replicate it. Each one might have its stigmas associated with it or pros and cons, but my knowledge right now is more so that one. It looks pretty promising, I think. I'm kind of picturing now like a, uh, a kitchen, you're putting your coffee beans into the coffee machine and then you're putting your, your other beans into the meat machine to make a, <laughs> to make a plant-based steak. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Again, that's the goal is to, I wouldn't even want to call it a printer. I'd call it almost like a replicator like in Star Trek, but you'd really have like a, a machine that can, you want to start with as close to the base ingredients as possible. So instead of, you know, giving the machine something like dough, you would give it water, oil, flour, all the base elements as possible so that it can create as many crazy things or as many, you know, relatable things as possible down those veins, like a base protein, a base carbohydrate, and then it could kind of combine them and and do it for you. So I think that's the ultimate goal, which I think gets really interesting. But obviously, I think it's going to take a while to get there. Looking to uh, some of the more experimental uses of this technology, I mean, I think something that uh, a lot of people are asking about is whether this could be applied to space travel, for example. Is this something that you think it would be suitable for? Yes, I think space travel is a really interesting one. That's one I usually mention as well when I try to help people contextualize where this technology could be marketed towards. I think it's a scenario where you need any scenario where people require some sort of customized diet. So I look at soldiers when they come back from the barracks or space travel is another great one because for one, you have close quarters. So space is very paramount, especially in an aircraft going to space where every little piece needs to be thought out. You won't have to have another person there. And and really what you'll have is a machine that can combine each of these little ingredients. And it's probably more delectable and more enjoyable than pushing out these pastes that, that most astronauts probably do when they're 
on these missions. But again, I can't speak from personal experience, but that's usually what you see. So yeah, I think also printing in zero gravity would be much more forgiving than printing under normal gravity because you can create more complex prints and it will definitely be more forgiving, which I think is another another great added value, added bonus to that. Yeah. So with something like space travel and uh, also you mentioned about soldiers and I assume also disaster relief could be another option. How does the uh, energy use compare to traditional cooking and, and how does the space savings compare? I mean, are we saving energy and space by using this machine compared to regular food? In short, I want to say probably not in terms of energy savings, but it's interesting where the energy goes because we can think about it from two perspectives. At least from the cooking side, I can think about it as there's the energy that's required to convert electrical energy into heat energy. And then how does that heat energy actually efficiently hit the food? And I think for that first piece, the electrical, the heat energy, if we're talking just about laser cooking, if that, we're assuming this part of the appliance, it's fairly inefficient. Generally, wall plug efficiencies for lasers and other sorts of things are pretty low comparatively to like you know ovens or other conventional cooking appliances. But all the heat from a laser does go into the food with slight reflections. So generally speaking, I'd say the efficiency from pushing that heat into the food is much higher. But for like an oven or something like that, typically you have a preheat time and you're heating an entire environment and there's generally more loss to the environment in that case. But for the actual printing process as well, there's definitely some energy that's required to actually reform these foods and for the machine to actually run. So perhaps it's a little more costly in that respect, but you can think about your saving energy also in that you're only creating what you need to eat. So there's perhaps less food waste and you're only printing out exact proportions and requirements. And what about the uh, space savings, like in terms of the amount of space it takes up in luggage, etc.? In terms of space savings, on the cooking appliance side, my laser is very small in terms of form factor. So it's definitely much smaller than carrying around a small toaster oven with you. But the actual food printing portion, it's really a function of how many ingredients you want to work with. I'd say typical meals are on the average of like 7 to 10 ingredients maybe. Right now, our machine is taking 18 ingredients and has a footprint of about eight cubic feet. So it's two feet by two feet by two feet. But we're at like the very early stages of developing this technology. So it's almost like the Nokia phone of phones right now. So it's a little bit clunky maybe, and it's a little bit more janky in how it's actually working. But I think as this technology develops and our motors get smaller and we get more efficient with how we can distribute the space around the actual printer, this footprint will come smaller and be closer to something like a microwave. So it's very analogous to typical kitchen appliances, I'd say. That's really exciting, yeah. And just to finish up, one more question Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people have. When can I buy one? (laughs) You could buy one tomorrow if you like, actually, because the technology, I mean, people are selling it, but the question is what we actually use it for because right now it's really expensive. It's somewhere on the order of a couple thousand dollars, the ones I've seen online. Realistically, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I think this technology will get better. I'd say in probably in about 10 years, you can more comfortably buy one on Amazon. And hopefully by then we'll have a food repository and ingredients you can actually download and it'll be more usable for you. Well, it sounds like a uh, very exciting time to be researching this, especially during the early stages where we're still feeling our way through and look forward to seeing how this develops over the future. So thank you very much for uh, joining us today, Jonathan. Where can people find out more about your research? Is there anywhere that they can go to find out more? Yeah, so our lab is called the Creative Machines Lab at Columbia University. 
And on there, we'll usually update a lot if we have recent publications or recent stories. So you can you can go to search that pretty fluidly or search food printing Colombia, and you'll you'll see all this stuff. So it's pretty easy to find. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been Lexicon with Interesting Engineering. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a uh, positive review on your favorite podcasting outlet. And we look forward to seeing you for the next episode. So thank you very much, Jonathan, and take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.